0: Welcome to Dump the Clutch with your host Brad Zimmerman. On your toes, on your toes, on your toes, on your toes, are
1: full wide. I your ass. Am I saying anything that's not true? I'm gonna bust his ass. Yes, for sure. We had a massive target on our back. As your Nickelback concert.
0: Creed, the showstopper. All right, so my, Mr. Verlatti, tell me a bit about yourself. So credentials, who you are, and how you got to North Carolina.
1: Got it, how I got to North Carolina. So it was a, uh, an interesting trip here, so I'll take you way back. So my dad was a NASCAR inspector in the like 70s and 80s, yep. and uh, we had three... I've got two other brothers. My mom didn't want to race all three of us every weekend on her own. So my dad basically like took me from age 10 to the racetrack every single weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, And age 15, I started working for him as an inspector. So... um, And this is
0: in California? Yeah. Yeah. San Francisco. Yep.
1: So, um, you know, growing up at the racetrack, hanging out with him, met a ton of people. And one of those guys I met was Steve O'Donnell. So that's ultimately how I got back here.
0: Yeah. And... So you started working at a very early age uh, your dad was that pretty much all your dad did his whole career or <laughs> so my dad and that had, was the Winston West series yeah so
1: my dad had a couple different jobs so he was a city of San Francisco water department truck driver uh-huh. and that job evidently is pretty easy because he was able to moonlight as a NASCAR <laughs> inspector on the weekends right so when he retired he was there for 31 years and he was the Southwest tour and Winston West uh, director of the series oh wow so
0: and what are some of your earliest nascar memories as a kid
1: uh, you know i've got a memory of going to the racetrack at like age eight with my grandfather and my father we went uh-huh. to riverside like sitting in the truck in between the two of them uh-huh. like and my grandfather wasn't a race fan uh-huh. uh, but it was kind of a guy's weekend and you know definitely one of the coolest memories there
0: yeah yeah uh, because i think you i think you put a picture on social media once it was or no it was in your office it was you and richard petty yeah Like old school Richard Petty. (laughs) Yeah, so like
1: uh, the Cup guys used to run some Winston West races. I mean, that's why the Winston West existed. Because when Cup would go back um, west, they didn't have enough cars. So the Winston West series was created to supplement the Winston Cup series. So guys like Richard Petty and Bill Elliott, like they were out there on a regular basis. So I do have a picture of uh, my brother and I and the king from like... You know, I'd say I was probably nine years old, yeah. which was really cool, yeah. um, but, but great memories there really growing up. I mean, uh, and when you think of the guys that came out of those series, mm-hmm. so um, Kevin Harvick, for example, like I, I remember my dad and Kevin's dad were friends. Mm-hmm. So when Kevin started driving late models and then tour cars, like I was there for all of that. Uh, Kurt Busch's first time ever in a stock car, he was in a Southwest tour car, Um, I was an inspector. I was driving the pace car. And like, you know, kind of inside baseball, lap one, turn one, he like got shuffled out and put it out of the park because there was no outside (laughs) retaining wall. I think we were in like Salt Lake City, Utah. He put it out of the park. Yeah. I'm driving the pace car. I'm like 16 years old. And and I'm just thinking in my head, like, who is this dipshit that took over this super cool car? Like, um, you know, the car was good. It was proven in the series. And he got an opportunity to drive it because of, you know, some kind of bad stuff. But Uh, We then became friends. And to this day, I think we're pretty good friends. Uh, And things like that are just really have been special.
0: And so, okay, so I wasn't thinking about this. So now um, if you and your dad are crawling through the guts of a car, tell me about some of the things you found. (laughs)
1: so I don't know that I was ever a really great NASCAR inspector
0: I think so you were the best NASCAR inspector (laughs) uh, the
1: teams really liked me I'll put it that way so yeah I mean literally from age uh, I got my first paycheck from NASCAR at 15 and I would pretty much do anything so I'd go under the cars I would search Mm -hmm. and the old man taught me like certain things to look for like all right you know, the drive shaft has to have, you know, three different hoops to keep the drive shaft in. You want this to be metal. We're looking for aluminum here. And I just really had a checklist. So Uh, I went through the checklist in my head with my magnet underneath the car because I was the little guy that could go under there. Um, and, uh, and got it done. Now there is a, it did happen to me. A crew chief got me, um, you know, he was doing some sideways stuff under the car at Phoenix one day. And Mm -hmm. like, I, plain as day looked at it yeah. and had no idea what I was looking at. It passed inspection. It failed post-race inspection. Uh-huh. And the crew chief who was a friend pulled me aside and was like, dude, you're a dipshit. <laughs> like it was there the entire time. Uh, but, you know, uh, <clears throat> one of the cool things was, you know, being an over the wall inspector before there were pit road speeds, <clears throat> you know, that was super cool. Yep. Um, once again, driving the pace car places <clears throat> like, um, Phoenix or, uh, Pike's peak. That was awesome. Uh, And then just, you know, all of the, you know, comings and goings of a of a nascar race weekend yep. at that young of an age and i was making like a hundred bucks a day so i'd come home oh wow. i'd come home to uh san francisco i'd go back to high school with my 200 bucks in my pocket at you know freshman year and i was the richest dude in school
0: so when you started working young how what type of kid were you how did that um hardwire you if it did at, at such a young age
1: good question so i was uh always a really hard-working kid i always had a job but I was. You know, uh, really struggled reading, uh, have ADD, I can't retain much, but the work ethic always kind of helped out. So,
0: and was your dad like that?
1: Uh, Yeah, uh, he was a little bit uh, smarter than me on the book side, Uh but he was also a hard worker. So, I was doing the NASCAR stuff on the weekend, I was apprenticing in a graphic design, a paint shop Monday through Friday, we were doing hot rods and Harleys for like the biggest, um, Harley Davidson dealerships in San Francisco, Dudley Perkins, San Francisco, Harley Davidson, Oakland, Harley Davidson, Golden Gate, you know? So it was like, I was 15 years old, 16 years old, sweeping floors, doing that Monday through Friday working for my dad on the weekends, but what I wasn't doing is ever going to school. Yeah. You know, I would go to the first class in the ditch. Yeah. Um, and that was pretty much the story. I was just never able to apply myself at school.
0: And did you, so you have really no uh, upper level formal education? No. Would, and would <laughs> Lucky you, to get out of high school. And would you change anything about that?
1: No, it's a question. I mean, I think we all read similar books. We listen to similar podcasts. Um, and I think James Altucher, James Altucher talks a lot about like, if his kids were not to go to college, and he was to apply that tuition to starting their first business, yep. you know, would that be more valuable? For me, it definitely was. Um, I was able to take my NASCAR experience. I got my first job, um, kind of out of high school, running a Southwest Tour team. Um, we had a two-car race team uh, based out of uh, Auburn, California, and then turned that into the opportunity going to work in Daytona Beach for NASCAR. So it all worked out for me. It was pretty unpredictable. My mom was worried a bunch
0: yep. that I was
1: going to be that screw up kid that was uh, looking for a job. But I think that because I was able to apply myself the way I was in the work ethic, yeah. that, that it worked out.
0: I would. I can honestly say that you're the first person I've met that that owns the hustle. Uh, there's people that work hard and work long hours and stuff like that, but an honest hustle. And I think a lot of that is because you put a lot on social media. And so you're always seeing, like, like I think last year you were on a plane almost every other day. <laughs> yeah, I think I did
1: uh, like 200 segments last year. I was in a whole bunch of different uh, cities, none of them consistent. Last mm. year was a big year for me um, and a bunch of travel. But, you know, ever since I was a kid, the hustle was the only thing that separated me from the rest. Yep. So, you know, good example is when I got the call to go back to Daytona Beach and work for Steve O'Donnell uh, in the series operations department, he was just light a guy. That's the only reason I got the call. We were friends um, and he was short a person to start the 2000 season. And he had a kid that came out of FSU with his master's degree. Uh, The guy's name is Brett Harrell. We're still great friends to this day. And Brett like was really, really bright but knew nothing about the garage. I only knew the garage. Yep. And I, you know, didn't know anything about the book. So Brett helped me. I helped him. And, you know, I kept, kept him out of trouble with Buster Otten and, and the guys <laughs> in the garage. And you, somebody has to teach, you know, these people that, especially in the, yep. the motorsports career. So
0: here's another thing I didn't know. So going back to you working in hot rod shops and motorcycle shops, yep. you have an unhealthy obsession with cars. <laughs> so did that start from working in those shops?
1: Uh, I'm not sure what that started, but... So when I try to tell people how unhealthy my car disease is, (laughs) the best way they can paint the picture is like, I love all cars. I love total, you know, POSs and, you know, high-end Bugattis. I love them all. And the extreme of that was, I think you and I were working together... Uh, back in the day, when I owned a smart car, yep. I owned a Dodge Ram SRT 10 with the Viper motor
0: yep. and
1: an Audi um, A6 412 Quattro all at the same time. Um, and, you know, it was.
0: It's quite a calling card.
1: It, it was quite a calling card, but that shows you how messed up I am. Right. Uh, I had to get rid of the smart car one day when I pulled up to the dry cleaner and I saw my reflection. <laughs> in the mirrors of the dry cleaner and it was myself and then I have English Bulldogs and it was my English Bulldog Lola that uh, was sitting really proud in the passenger seat and I just thought man this is not a good look for me so I sold the car the next day um, your old boss is the one that sold it to us uh, Felix got me you know I mentioned to my wife I was like yeah I'd kind of like one of these smart cars so you know she works in the industry and she called Felix to find out who sold them yeah Felix pulled the smart car off of somebody else's reservation because at that time it was like a year waiting list. He pulled it off of somebody uh. else's reservation and said, you know, here, Michael and Kelly, this car is yours. Do you want to give me cash now? You know, so I didn't really, in my eternal salesman, I didn't intend on buying a smart car that day, but yeah, I have a really unhealthy obsession. I mean, right now I've got, um, I think I've got five or six cars, uh, some mini bikes, some of that kind of stuff that I'm trying to cut down the number, but I've got a great, like reason to own all of them and yeah,
0: i struggling. There's, um, I think our stories overlap a little bit, but I, I worked in a in a parts store and the guys that owned it and worked there, they had unbelievable cars and they all worked on them themselves. And it was engine, body, paint. And so when you're around that and you see what it takes to build a car correctly and what you're looking for, I think that really, like I love cars too, but now I know what to look for. Yeah. And it's not just what I can afford or what I can't afford. It's oh, like, I look at all the good so stuff. Well,
1: after working with all those guys, like what I know is I don't want to build any of them. Like I
0: want to buy a project that they've sunk
1: a ton of money into it. They're right. selling it half off yeah. and I can just, you know, beat the ever living daylights out of it, keep it for a year and yeah. get rid of it. And that's typically my MO. Like every year I get itchy and I've got to sell something and get something new.
0: So we worked together in 2007, 8, 9, yeah, somewhere right just pick there. a number. I was thinking yeah.
1: about that today. I was like, okay, what year was that? We'll say 2008.
0: And um, so the way you're wired and the way you approach everything, that had a really good... Um, integration into the workplace, into the office. So what does culture mean to you when it comes to working with a group of people?
1: Yeah, culture is an interesting one and it's a buzzword that a lot of companies throw around. and It's a buzzword that a lot of managers try to work on. I think that as I get older, like I really, it means a lot to me. I want to work around people that I love, like that, you know, day in and day out. If they need something, I'll go do it. They'll go do it for me. And we don't ever hesitate. And and we saw that at the place that we worked uh, before. There was a lot of really great people there and culture was a big part of their success. Um, But especially after leaving there and starting my own company and doing a couple different things, it was, I had the ability to work with smaller groups and hand select um, individuals that I felt kind of had a similar work ethic, life code to myself and uh, that I can count on. So I'm really privileged right now. Um, I'm at ISM Connect and I've got a team of uh, guys and gals and out of my core operations guys, all of them, but one, I think I've got nine guys and all of them, but one came from um, our former workplace. Oh, really? So I've got uh, some guys like Charlie Roberts that I've been working with since yep. you know 2007, mm-hmm. Jordan Lichko, Brad Baker. Um, Dave Long I mean I'm really really privileged to have these guys that like have been on a ride with me for a really long time and you know I ask myself like how has that happened and how have I been so lucky to continue to work with these guys and and it goes back to you know I think that um, I work alongside them day in and day out you know I I like to drive forklifts, so you know I think they appreciate that because they're not uh, used to seeing, like you said in your last part podcast, a a carpet walker out (laughs) driving a piece of equipment. But you know I do feel like that's what makes us different. So uh, we did a job last year, and one of the things that uh, we kind of made part of our deal is uh, we would have a beer at the end of the night, and we were on a, a, a concert tour, a stadium tour, and when the tour started. Those beers were at 8 a.m. the next day. We wow. would work all through the night right. um, till the sun came up. But as a team, we would sit, we would close the door. As soon as that holler door closed, uh, we would crack a beer. And I was running two teams. So I was a team lead, and then there was another gentleman that was a uh, team two. And we started competing to see who could finish earliest and who could crack the beer. Soonest. Right. So we started sending WhatsApp notes like, hey, you know, eight o'clock this morning, we're done. Then it was seven. And at the end, um, I got beat. Uh, he, we were down to like within minutes uh-huh. and, uh, Davis Eckert is the team lead there and Davis finished at like two 30 AM. So oh, we wow. went all the way from eight AM yeah. to two 30 AM. So, you know, it's things like that, that the guys like really appreciate. And, yeah. you know, we make it part of, you know, what we want our culture to be.
0: Yeah. And so I asked this, uh, with Sean, we uh, interviewed a few days ago when you don't have, When you don't see that culture fit, how quickly do you move? And do you have the ego to admit that, oh, I'm kind of screwed up here?
1: Yeah, I don't have a problem admitting when the culture fit isn't there. But I will tell you that I believe a flaw of mine is I hold on to people a little bit too long. I think Sean said, like, he moves quickly. Um, And I'm a hugger lover, like, hey, we can be part of this team. Now, if it's something blatant, like they just... Are not the right person, they're not the right culture fit, Like we'll spit them out really, really quick. But yep. I've been fortunate to not make many of those mistakes. Yep. There's some people that just like aren't on the right seat on the bus and we can move them around. And then there's others that just aren't right for the bus. Um, and trying to move as quickly as possible <clears throat> is something that I aspire to be able to do a better job moving yeah. forward. And how old are you now? I'm 41.
0: You're 41. So when we worked together, you worked there uh, a little bit longer than I did. You eventually left. And yep. you started your own business, yeah. And how old were you? So I, it was,
1: I was probably thirty-six when I started Traction Event Labs.
0: And and how and how was that? You're married, like, is that like, because you always hear there's never a good time to start your own business, yep. so. Tell me how that process went through, knowing that you didn't want to really go work for anybody else, but you want to kind of do your own thing. Yeah,
1: it goes back to that hustler mentality. So I was really privileged to um, work in NASCAR for just two years, and I went from there over to CSM, who handles all the opening ceremonies for a lot of uh, major NASCAR events. I was there 13 years. I was employee seven. Um, And when I left, there was, you know, 80-ish employees. I think probably now they're over 100, and it was just a different company that when I started, and uh, still really great friends with everybody there, including the owner. It was just time for me to make a change. And I left and made a couple false starts. I went to two different companies that only lasted like six months. I mean, mm-hmm. it goes back to like, how quick do you make the decision? I got there, realized it was wrong, left, did it again, left. And I said, you know what? I had such a great streak of being in one place for so long that I don't want this to be... Kind of the legacy that i have which is okay this guy can only hold a job for for six months or a year yep. so what i did know is that i believed in myself enough to roll the dice i'm privileged to have a wife that has a really stable job she works for nascar she's been there um coming up on 20 years Holy we sh- don't have kids <laughs> um you know we don't live an extravagant lifestyle so mm-hmm. we can really make it on her salary which mm-hmm. is a blessing so i felt like it was the right time to make that move now Prior to starting my own company, I had dabbled. I had um, started kind of an app development. It wasn't really app development, it was more like project management of app development. Um, And NASCAR was a customer of mine and a couple other people and I had that to fall back on. There was a little bit of income that was coming in there and there was a little bit of kind of life experience that I was able to apply. So when I went all in on my own company, Traction Event Labs, I was thinking that there was a business doing high-end hospitality in motorsports events. And there is, but it's not here in North Carolina. Correct. Um, yep. You know, if we're over in Europe and we're talking about some of the things that they're doing in Formula One or MotoGP, there's a business there. I don't know if a one guy working out of his garage can really yep. <laughs> make a big difference in that space, but here in NASCAR country, it just there isn't enough of it to be sustainable. I mean, you know it at uh, the company that you're currently with, there's a lot of people that want hospitality, but that high end is something that there's just not a bunch of customers. They want it
0: high end enough.
1: They want it high end enough. So I was privileged to be able to produce some events that I'm really proud of. Like I was producing the NASCAR Hospitality Hub um, on behalf of NASCAR. I was doing uh, a Capital One project for Bespoke. Like I was doing some stuff that was really, really cool. I had the opportunity to partner with a specialty equipment manufacturing company that built a custom hospitality trailer on my spec, and wow. they owned it, yep. and we kind of rev shared it. But I didn't have to give them a commitment, and I didn't have to give them any money up front. And then I was able to sell it on their behalf, so that for me was a huge blessing. But I got yep. a year in and realized like it just wasn't, it wasn't going to be what I wanted it to be. So then I had to diversify, and I did a couple of different. Um, hospitality events I did more work with the NASCAR Fuel for Business Hub um, or excuse me NASCAR Fuel for Business Council they hired me to be kind of a content creator I brought Kim Kuhn around she was the yep. um, NASCAR Fuel for Business Insider and we created content and really blessed for them I mean if it wasn't for Nora Scott and Garotti like that was a major part of my revenue through you know at least uh, 2016. I then turned that into an opportunity um, with ISM Connect where they didn't know anybody in the garage they were new to the sport they had made a commitment to travel to every ISC race and they didn't have they had four employees in their company and they didn't have anybody that knew anything about operations and I was the only person they knew in the garage so they called me and said hey we have just signed this deal. It's four weeks before the Daytona 500. Can you help us manage this? Oh, wow. (laughs) So it was huge for me in my Mm -hmm. business. I was able to pick up some of the guys that i had been working with in the past that were then freelancing, and we produced it together. So we handled all of the app track activation for ISM, and I went to renew my contract the next year and the um, company got bought out. They went through a little bit of change and the new president who I had never met, you know, I'm really depending on him to sign the contract because now all the business that I had was with them. Right. I uh, went to renew my contract and he said, hey, you know, you've been doing great work. We have no desire to get into the operations business without you, you know, why don't you come on board as a full-time employee and and build your own team? So that's what I've been privileged to do. Our office is in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, where we have about 50 employees up there. We have 80 total, 50 of them are in Doylestown, uh, mainly developers. And I've got an apartment in, in Doylestown. I spend quite a bit of time up there. But I also have been able to retain the team and um, the office here in Charlotte. So we're right off of Tybola. We've got a 3,500-square-foot warehouse. And, you know, we just keep our trucks, trailers, and equipment there. And, and um, you know, it's really been a good...
0: And most people listening to this, they'll they'll probably know or, or realize or remember. When they're at a racetrack, so describe what the, the unit looks like, at least at at, at, at track.
1: So, um ISM Connect is an interesting company. It's A lot of people get confused with what it is that we do. So as an ops guy, I try to dumb it way down. We're a digital at-home advertising company. No different than the digital kind of signs that exist in the Charlotte Airport. Yep. So in the Charlotte Airport, those signs are all owned by a company called JC Deco, and they're the largest uh, digital at-home advertising company in the U.S., probably the world. Um, and they probably have somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 screens. We aspire to be them one day. Uh, We currently are managing about a thousand screens. So when you go to the racetrack, we have uh, 17 small billboards. they are 86-inch TV on a pole that are scattered around the racetrack uh, playing ad content.
0: And are all of those screens mobile?
1: All of the screens at a NASCAR racetrack are mobile. So we are doing a couple different things. We have a mobile deployment. We have a mobile fleet that go to live events and set up in the sponsor activation areas. Mm -hmm. Um, At the beginning of this year, we deployed a permanent network infrastructure at minor league baseball stadiums. So we are currently at 27 minor league baseball stadiums. We're getting ready to do another 10. And we currently have 309 permanent screens at baseball stadiums. So the closest one to us here is... The uh, Greenville Drive has 20 screens, Winston-Salem has 22, and they're really all over the country from Reno to Scranton, PA.
0: Yep. And uh, so 2007 or 8, when the economy took a dump, I remember that um, Chevrolet, they were still wanting to spend money in the sport, and the government, since they're getting government money, they made them justify the spend by using some pretty high-tech, te- high-tech technology, so do you want to, dis- to describe some of the technology within ISM that maybe people don't know about?
1: Yeah, so that's really what makes us different than JC Um Right now, advertisers are so used to uh, the analytics they get back when they make a web buy. You know if you're going to place an ad on Google, you know how many people clicked on it, how many people looked at it, what the click through rate was, what the where they came was,
0: from, where they're going, all yes. of that. Yep.
1: And you can't get that in the real world. Um, right now, you can't get that in the real world. There's a couple different ways of doing it, whether it's you know tracking your cell phone or cooking, um, you know, different things sites that you visit. But what makes our digital billboards unique is every digital billboard has a camera mounted on board, and that camera is looking at the audience and it is capturing total amount of people that walked by if you stop and you look at the ad it starts counting um, and it turns you from you know just a passerby or to a viewer and then it counts how long you view for and we're able to break it into male female and then different age ranges per ad so at the end of a weekend we're able to go back to uh, our friends at Kroger and say hey guys, 200,000 people looked at your ad at the Daytona 500, 56% of them were male over the age of 40, and this ad um, responded better than this ad, Um, maybe we need to change the different content. So that's really what's making us different. Now, in that example, we're, at the screen basically turning the data into ones and zeros so we don't know that uh, you're Brad Zimmerman yep. we just know that you're a male you know 40 to 50 age range and you looked at the Kroger ad for 37 seconds
0: yeah I cuz uh, I was with some sponsors uh, one time at Texas Motor Speedway in their suite looking down in the infield and I was explaining to them what the screens are because they were asking me about them and I also noticed their position where they are. So before you go into a track or wherever you're gonna go to, how much time do you look at the footprint to make sure that you're gonna capture the most amount of people?
1: So we've got a really great team that's currently doing that. And now we're three years into this. So I think that that was one of the advantages when ISM, I'm gonna pat myself on the back, hired me, is I had a lot of experience on the sponsor midway. I mean, you and I worked on the Sprint account together, we worked on Chevrolet, we worked on a whole bunch of different brands. We knew what fan ingress and egress was. And Mm -hmm. that year one, it was totally on my gut. I'm like, all right, let's go here, there, you know, the other. We also work with the track, but there aren't a lot of track people that really understand the flow of their fans Um, pre-race and then once the race starts I mean I think they have an idea of they come in these entrances they come out because they know ticket scan data but you know we know that the um, area in Daytona where the monster energy smoke show is is going to be packed for the smoke show and they play once an hour yeah so if that's all you want that's fine but you might be better off at the M&M Mars area because they're handing out candy and they're gonna have a consistent flow of people all day long. long. So it was things like that that we used day one. Year two we came back having the data from year one and we're able to look at the best performers. I took out the bottom five screens and repositioned those closer to what the top performers were Mm -hmm. um, getting. So now three years in we've really kind of honed in. What we changed this year is we changed the form factors. We now have three different form factors. We have what we've had since day one, which is a 86-inch screen on a 14-foot pole. It's large. It's 3,000 pounds. And it's really those big beacons. And we put those on the outside perimeters of the facilities, trying to kind of draw people in. And then we have a 75-inch screen that looks like a pit cart. And those kind of get tighter down the um, the flow of people where, you know, closer to where a display would be. And then we have a 55-inch portrait kiosk that can be in elevator lobbies and things of that nature. And that's really what I was trying to do with that form factor is how can we get these into the tighter areas where we know there's going to be a bunch of people.
0: And then so the people that work in the out-of-home industry, uh, what seems to be the best performing content? Like what makes, what has stopping power?
1: So we're three years in and we're really trying to figure that out. And each one of our networks is generating a different answer. Huh. So NASCAR, uh, for example, the best piece of content that we've had the last three years running is New Hampshire Motor Speedway created a piece of content with Monster Energy Cup Series drivers trying to pronounce the messed up city names in their area. Yep. You know, they've got all those weird yep. names and it was really, really funny content. People would stop and they would watch and they probably had 10 different pieces in the rotation and people would stop and watch every one of them. So that was great. Baseball is a little bit different, so we're typically in the concession area, we're on the outskirts, you're at a baseball game for a lot longer, therefore the longer pieces of content aren't doing as well. It's more like stats, um, did you know, big infographics, things like that are doing mm-hmm. well. And then we also have a network that we've just deployed at Terrible Herps gas stations in the Las Vegas area, so that's 105 gas stations in Las Vegas where these screens are. And those, you know, are more like kind of when you're at the gas pump, what are you looking at? So it's big, flashy, um, short piece of content promoting Coca-Cola or M&M Mars or things like that. Um, we're getting ready to do a trial with a, a show in Vegas and I'm interested to see what kind of content they create to draw in those eyeballs. Cause that's a different audience. And
0: what about our, do you have any screens in amusement parks?
1: So we don't yet. We have two screens, which was really the first deployment that the uh, first company created at the Greensboro Science Center, um, which is just up the road. And those are doing pretty well. But but the Greensboro Science Center and ISM haven't spent a ton of energy trying to figure out content there because it was only two screens. And we were growing so fast that... You know, the the latest, greatest shiny toy gets all the energy. So when I first joined the company, it was NASCAR. That's all we really worked on. Then we went from there to the music tour. We went from the music tour to baseball. And now we're on this uh, gas station network because they've given us a commitment to do a thousand screens over the next six months. So because of that, you know, we're always just in constant kind of rush mode to figure out how to make those networks work.
0: And what is the long-term play? Is it to get into city, like high-density cities and things like that?
1: Yeah, high-density cities. I don't know if uh, there is a future where we potentially license our uh, content management system to some of the other players like JC DeCo or Clear Channel. We're building all our own proprietary technology. So the analytics engine that's counting the people, that's built in-house. The CMS is built in-house. Uh, there's some other tools like we're doing some facial recognition, opening up locks um, for different environments. Oh, That's yeah. our own yep. uh, proprietary technology. We've got a development office in Cambridge where those guys are really at the cutting edge of uh, computer vision and machine learning. Oh, and then wow. we've got the team in Doylestown that uh, are just really doing a terrific job of making sure that our our technology is product ready and gets deployed as quick as possible. So yes. we're moving in all these areas as fast as we can, which yep. makes it tough on the ops guy because I'll, I'll literally get a call tomorrow saying, um, hey, we're going on a music tour, pack up your stuff and let's go. So um, the music tour we went on last year, I think I had 30 days notice and it was a, um, you know, one of the like largest- tour. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was the, the largest stadium tour of 2018. So (laughs) it was no joke. And I thought, there's no way this is ever going to come to fruition. Fast forward 30 days, and I'm in the parking lot in Phoenix with a whole bunch of new team members who uh, had never worked together as a team. New assets were getting shipped in. um, And and we pulled it off. It was tremendous. But it now scares me and and also excites me that that call could come at any moment. You know, we got a call last year with uh, the NFL wanting us to do... You know, I don't speak sports ball, but um, <laughs> they wanted us to do the, the help me out where they where they pick dudes the combine, not the combine.
0: Draft, oh, the draft, draft, the draft, yeah. and draft
1: is evidently a really, really big deal right now. Oh yeah, um, that's <laughs> turned into a major event. So yep. because of that, they wanted to put our screens at their uh, facility, and they wanted to do some other stuff with them, which you know just is exciting for me that you know tomorrow who knows what the opportunity is going to be. And to when,
0: when you put in a network, whether it's stationary or mobile, this thing is live and running and breathing and you can monitor it from oh, yeah. your from your phone. Right?
1: Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, we're pushing all the content out of the cloud. So the guys in Doylestown create the content, push the reel to the screens. Each screen is controlled individually. So if I've got 20... At a facility, each one can be playing something different if we want. It's all being pulled down via um, cell cards that are in the screens. I like to give them wires. I like to give them hardline internet access, but that's not available at all times so the nice part is all the monitoring um, all the programming all of it happens without having boots on the ground
0: and then the the advertisers that are buying the space from you i'm assuming they have a dashboard they can watch something live as well
1: not yet so that's what okay. we're working towards so what we're currently doing is we're generating a report on monday we put it in Photoshop, we make it pretty and we send it to them. So where we're moving towards and I believe we're going to be there in the next six to twelve months is a real-time dashboard that an advertiser will be able to look at. The other thing they'll be able to do is move money from one network to the next depending on performance. So. In theory, we're creating a marketplace for digital at-home advertisers. Yeah. So if you're making a buy, you can put a little bit of money in baseball, a little bit in NASCAR, a little bit on the gas station network, a little bit on the concert tour. Oh. And if you're trying to target um, you know, people the age of your daughters... You know, you're gonna maybe you think that the concert tour is right up their alley, so that's where you put your initial buy. Yep. And as you're watching the data come in, you realize that the gas station network is doing better than you thought, so you move some money in real time. Huh. Um, and that's where we're. Aspiring to get to. And as we look at our competitors, nobody's there yet. So we really think that that's a white space
0: in the market. And then I'm sure with AI, you can just tell the machine to optimize that spend and then you just push go. and That's exactly what we're trying to get. I mean,
1: (laughs) you and I are similar, I think. I've listened to uh, each one of your podcasts so far and I don't think you had any tech geeks on yet. But I think when you and I get together, (laughs) we could probably go down a rabbit hole. uh, Yeah.
0: So Doug, that was here, you know, he, he is in the middle of it and he even said that they really don't use a lot of technology at all like Which i is
1: amazing to me
0: yeah i still think because maybe we're on the same page with this is because we've grown up in a sport that has a, a business model that is terrible yeah that you're constantly looking to try and add value to it and using the available tools out there that's the way to do it. Now, making it bridge the, that gap and making sure that that income coming in is enough to support the thing, which is probably not.
1: It's so funny because you've been talking about this since like 2007. Forever. And you're, and you're really, <laughs> really on it. I mean, When we <laughs> talked in the day about you know, E-League and some of the video gaming, I mean, that's where it's getting. So let's think about putting sensors on pit crew members and that sensor data going automatically into the video game, that way the video game is more realistic to what actually happened on a race weekend. Like, I think that those two worlds, you know, the computer world and the real world are merging in one in a really unique way that I don't think we saw. Um, 10 years ago, and I'm super excited for where it's going, you know, whether it's wearable technology or it's the idea of machine learning, all of that is, I can just geek out on it.
0: I I will admit, I totally took a shit on Formula E. I didn't think it was going to make it because that cars don't make any noise.
1: (laughs) Before you said that, I was going to say, your (laughs) thing from day one has been they don't make any noise. But
0: But if you look at the audience that's paying attention to them, they're not like us. They're tech nerds, and it just happens to be in the form of a car. So I don't, I will still never watch Formula E. I will appreciate it from a distance, but they're being funded, they're being pushed. And then the ability to intertwine that technology back to the phones that we use every single day. That's the crux of it. I just put an article out today. Um, you know, The word hybrid is starting to kind of inch into the NASCAR realm and people freak out because it. they think Toyota Prius. Yeah. And, and hybrid is unsexy and it doesn't make any noise. They're fucking wrong. I totally
1: agree. (laughs) I mean, you think about these millennials that are on their device the entire time. They like to have real connections. They have real friends. They want to have conversations. Going to a racetrack might be one of the most excruciating things that you could ever ask them to do. Now, let's think about... A couple years from now when there are some hybrids in the sport and the races are a little bit shorter because of the battery technology they're quieter so they can have a real conversation with their friend there's a bunch of data that's being pulled out of the car sent directly to their device like now it's getting to a place where yep. it might be a little bit more appetizing for them to actually come out and turn into the avids that we want them to be yeah right now nascar defines avids as like the guys like us that are motorheads and gearheads and we love it. Yeah. But there's not a ton of those growing up these days. Yep. You know, I don't know if your daughters like are excited about cars. I mean, I think I heard on one of your podcasts that, you know, Shelby did like you could give her money to go to a race, but that's it. Yep. But I bet if it was a music festival or a food festival, I don't know. It's it's more the idea of an experience yep. that we all want to be a part of I mean I get excited about going to more things like that
0: Long Beach Grand Prix I still think has the best blueprint out there With, for, for motorsports
1: without a doubt yep. I you know was able to work on the IndyCar program for a couple of years go to the Long Beach Grand Prix I didn't know anything about it you know growing up a stock car kid on the West Coast I just never paid attention to Long Beach Grand Prix yep. get out there and it's the race cars on the track are one thing. And it's, it's huge, but it's everything else. I mean, it's the trophy trucks that they run. It's the car shows.
0: It's the drifting. It's the
1: drifting. You know, our friend uh, Mark Burnett at MD Extreme mm-hmm. is doing the stunt show out there in the parking lot. You know, all of those things make for a really amazing event. And when people ask me, like, hey, what IndyCar race to go to, like, without a doubt, that's the first one that I say. Like, I think yeah. that is probably one of the best experiences for somebody who just wants to take in the car culture.
0: Yep. Yeah, I so so IndyCar's already made plans and made announcements on twenty two that they're gonna have a hybrid engine. Mm-hmm. It's not gonna be super fancy like the Formula One. I think it's gonna almost look like a clutch. That you won't even be able to see it'll go in between the engine transmission. But they're gonna get at least nine hundred horsepower out of a six cylinder. And the speeds at the five hundred, which is kind of like the measuring stick for that series, you know, with a tailwind going into three, I think people have seen like 241, 242. They're going to approach 250, easy. And, um, you know, the thing is, is that, again, people don't realize that track is over 100 years old. They have not changed the geometry of that track. It's 12 degrees of banking. Yeah. So they're literally being stuck to the ground through arrow, and they have to hope their engineers got it right.
1: You <laughs> know, I mean, electric cars are an exciting part about the future. I mean, you look at the Porsche that was just announced. I mean... I'm a proud owner of a 64 Galaxy 500 with a 427 in it. Right. There is nothing more American than that. <laughs> right. But I don't know. I could be talked into a Tesla in a car. Well, I'm a car crackhead. But yeah. other than that, like I'd love to have a Tesla. I'd love to have one of these new Porsches, like the yeah. um, electric pickup truck that's coming out. Mm-hmm. I think it's Rivian. Um, that's some cool, cool stuff. These cars are really, really fast. I was watching on the... Uh, it's not the Hot Rod Power Tour, but Hot Rod does a drag um, yep. a drag event that was just last week. And there were a couple of electric cars racing in that. I mean, these things were fast. Yep. You know, when you see them in the starting line against a, you know, 70 heavy Cuda, and you're thinking, like, the Cuda's going to smoke it. Next thing right. you know, this Tesla just launches, <laughs> and you feel so bad for the, you know, plum crazy Cuda that you're like, shit.
0: <laughs> um, okay, so... You've been in the sport a long time. You've seen it. Uh, If you had a magic wand and you were sitting in the chair, what were the first few things that you would do to help right the ship?
1: So, um, just I'll kind of preface with this. Like, we lived in the sport for a long time. My father, obviously, 30-year NASCAR employee. I have what I have because of NASCAR. I have what I have because of France family. Um, Personal friends with Steve Phelps. My wife works very close with the board of directors, um, so I'm really excited about what they've done in the last year or two. I mean, there was no um, no other way to say it than they were in you know some bad shape and they needed to figure some stuff out. I think Good. Steve is doing a great job. I think that the competition department under Steve O'Donnell is doing a great job. Mm-hmm. Now he's not going to like it, but I don't think people, I don't think most people give a shit about the competition. I go to a baseball game, a football game, expecting a good game. That's just par for the course. What I expect is everything else around it. So what I would do if I was sitting in the seat, what I think that they're doing is spending a lot more time and energy on the experience. I mean, you just saw Talladega yesterday unveiled their uh, Big Bill Grill or whatever that outdoor space is, which is cool. But I think that merging of the video game technology and fan experience, I'm, I'm not, I don't know anything about WWE, but you seem to like know it all. Love it. Like merging those worlds (laughs) is where I think NASCAR needs to go. Mm -hmm. You know, I get back, um, you know, Jay Howard used to talk to us a lot about driver's introductions shouldn't be what it is. It's boring. I would prefer like driver's introductions should be the night before the race and it should be more of like a boxing weigh in. It should be more of an event where you're in a stadium, there's lights, there's pyro. It could be a made-for-television experience. And I think that that's what fans of the future are looking for. The other part of that is we still have a lot of race fans at a racetrack every single weekend. Mm -hmm. You know, there's 60,000, 80,000 fans at a facility. That's a lot of people. We need to be proud of those 80,000 people that are there and not go, man, it used to be 120. You know, I was privileged to work in the sport, work directly for NASCAR in 2000 and 2001, um, and then remain in the sport, you know, throughout the 2000s. And like we were in the heyday, um, yeah. and it was super cool. But the track's overbuilt. The sport got high on its own supply, and it's just not going to be there. I don't think it's ever going to get back there, and I'm okay with that. Yeah. You know, I prefer kind of where it is now. I just want these facilities to recognize that this is okay, and then do as much as they can with the tools that they're giving. I still see a lot of facilities that are just plain lazy. The level of production, event production that they're putting into an event, uh, and and an at-track experience is is horrible. Yep. You know, It's not the Long Beach Grand Prix. And when I've been doing some other things, whether it's going to football games, going to festivals, going to concerts, like the expectation of the fan is to be entertained from second one till they leave. And now the only thing that a NASCAR fan really has is the on-track experience. There's not much else. And I yep. think that that's what the sport needs to work on.
0: And I think cost... Excuse me, plays into that hugely because if if people are paying attention, where IndyCar is now, and 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 again, the, the caveat is, IndyCar or NASCAR, they're never going to go back to what they used to be. Yep. Like IndyCar used to be bigger than NASCAR okay. by like a factor of three, yeah. and so that's went away. What IndyCar has done over the last five six years is they've hit their bottom, and by doing that, it forces them to really rethink a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So
1: And they've got great leadership right now under Jay Fry. I think that's a huge piece of it.
0: Yeah. And but if you look at their spec car, it's all off-the-shelf stuff. Yep. They still have engineers, they're still doing some, you know, tricks and things up their sleeve, but largely that is the same car. That's why you have the big two or three teams winning a lot. And then every you know, every so often you have Dale Coin Racing winning. Yep. So that they have figured it out because they were forced to figure it out. And if you're reading the headlines now in NASCAR, they're starting to get to that point where I think in the end of next year, they're going to go to the next generation car. It's going to be a common chassis. It's going to be common front clip, rear clip, and it's all off shelf parts and pieces, which is great. Um, hopefully, it'll keep the cost lower. Um, the negative, there's probably gonna be a lot of people out of a job, mm-hmm. which I think this might be a conversation with me and you off to the side about like, cause that's gonna be a white space. There's gonna be a lot of talented people. Yeah,
1: there's like, a lot of talented people, but- Looking for work. Especially in this area, because people in this area have have gotten accustomed to a lifestyle yeah. that was totally dependent on the sport. Yep. You know, you have um, back office people, pit crew members, whatever it is, making 100000 plus a year, living on Lake Norman, driving the boat, driving the new Tahoe, like they've got all this stuff. And if NASCAR makes a decision to, you know, go to kind of the winter heats model where they come in for breaks, they do five minute breaks where you can change tires and put gas in the car and make yep. some adjustments. Now you don't need all those pit crew members.
0: Your $200,000 tire changer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now <laughs> right. you're in deep trouble. And if that's all you've done for the last 10 years, and like we talk about, you know, you also haven't created a um, social media presence. You haven't spent any time trying to learn something Mm -hmm. aside from being faster at the racetrack, like you're going to be in trouble. And I do think that there is a white space there that can potentially um, be filled by some people that can think outside of the box.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's gonna be interesting how this new spec comes out, but I think there's gonna be a lot of pushing and shoving and screaming and yelling right off the bat, but I think it's gonna correct itself pretty quickly. So
1: I've got a unique opportunity where um, the lead investor for ISM Connect is is Mr. Gallagher at GMS Racing. Mm-hmm. And I'm privileged to have the opportunity to talk to him once a week, every other week. He'll call me when he's bored and in, in Tahoe going for a walk. And I mean Mr. Gallagher has built three billion dollar businesses in his life and you know the race team was a passion project of his and he's able to share with me kind of the finances around it I mean it's one thing at the cup level I mean what you showed me at Ganassi a year ago when we took a tour there was mind-blowing to me but also seeing the money that these Xfinity guys and truck teams are our spending is really, really out of control. I think trucks have done a good job with the spec motor. That's helped them a bunch. Xfinity's in a weird spot. Um, And Mr. Gallagher just announced that he's, I believe, going to shut the Xfinity team down and just going to go truck racing. And it's just because of finances. You know, what I continued to see over the last 30 years is I don't care how much money a person has, whether it's Mr. Hendrick level of money, Mr. Penske level of money, at a certain point, they all get tired of losing their money Absolutely. and they leave the sport. And we need to get to a place where motorsports in general, whether it's IndyCar, NHRA, Formula One, NASCAR, where they can operate these businesses as maybe profitable businesses. Maybe yep. that's not achievable, but it can't be the cash draw that it currently is Yeah. because like Mr. Gallagher, at a certain point, eventually, it's not ten million dollars worth of fun.
0: Yep, yeah, it's uh, people like that don't get rich by spending their own money.
1: They're not dumb. <laughs> no, it's it's amazing to me that uh, that they continue to stay in the sport as long as they do and spend the money that they continue to spend but it's for the love but at a certain point something happens um you know maybe you don't win the championship that you thought you would have after a couple years or you do win the championship um, like front row racing and then say okay i've been there done that got the trophy it's time to pack it up and take it to the house and that's what i think the sport needs to do in order to get healthier and they're doing some of the things the cost cutting you know you see with driver salaries right now i mean the driver salaries the william byron's of the world are are probably making a fair wage i don't know what what he makes compared to being you, but (laughs) he's probably making a fair wage for what he does. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you look at the, the generation of the Dale juniors and the Tony Stewart's of the world, I mean, they were making stupid, stupid money. Now they're putting their lives at risk and I don't want to discount that in any way, but still when you're, Flying on a G five, when you're helicoptering the racetrack, when you got the cigarette boat out on Lake Norman, like mm-hmm. it's just, <laughs> it's a little bit bonkers.
0: And so, with the the um, holding companies that own the tracks going back private, do you finally see towards the end of the tunnel where we're going to go to twenty some races and maybe end before football or right when football starts, or do you still see this as being a year round, almost year round deal? <laughs>
1: I, don't, I really don't wanna talk smack about them.
0: I don't think <laughs> that
1: they have the courage to do what it takes to really get it right. Yeah. There's still so much money involved, so much TV money, yeah. so much greed that everybody wants the biggest cake possible that I don't know that they'll do that. If it was me, yeah, let's go to yeah. 20 races a year, let's not go to any facility twice, yeah. let's stop before football season, let's get this sport right-sized. But just think about the TV money that they're going to leave on the table. I think when that does get right is when the TV rights deals go away and they have to think about a different model and maybe that different model will enable them to cut the amount of races. Yeah, I
0: think they've already been doing it, they just don't know it. But I think the the micro version of that is these tracks tearing down seats and creating demand. They had too much demand. They, They couldn't fill the demand. So what do they do? They get rid of the seats. That's a logical step. I think the macro of that is you need to get rid of events. And you know, maybe oh, it's maybe okay. it's not 36 races, but maybe it's a Wednesday race in there. You yeah, know? I mean so.
1: I think that's a great example. I mean, I got yelled at by Gillian Zucker, who was the president of Auto Club Speedway because I did not have a flyby for qualifying at Auto <laughs> Club Speedway. And that to me was like this this sign that like we were really messed up in the sport yep. of, you know, the expectation was a packed house on Sunday. You know, a pretty good crowd on Saturday. And you needed to have enough going on where they were also going to sell a Friday ticket. Like, that just is unreasonable in this day and age. It probably never should have happened. Like, it should be at a place where Sunday, Saturday can be an event. I think it needs to be more about the nighttime activity, like what you're seeing at Talladega and the shenanigans that go on down there. And then Sunday being the main event. Like that's where I think we need to get. That's where other sports are. Trying to drag it out for weeks and weeks. Look at speed weeks. Like it's not what it used to be to the point where, you know, I don't know, the last couple of years, did you go down to Daytona for the two and a half weeks like you used to, or did you just go? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did not. <laughs> yeah. And you weren't the only one. There was yeah. a lot of people. And it was the events that they mm-hmm. produced, that NASCAR produces. I mean, they did a, a kickoff party the night before the 500, and and that was it. There wasn't a whole bunch of stuff drug out through Mm -hmm. the two-week period like there used to be.
0: Because if you look at the Super Bowl, if you look at the World Series, if you look at WrestleMania, that's a one-time-a-year deal. I love how you put WrestleMania. I'm going (laughs) to put wrestling in everything. You shut your mouth. But when you have those annual single events, the city gets behind it, and they theme the whole broadcast and the whole theme around the event around their city we have that every weekend. So if you're not going to a track twice a year and you got one shot to make it, I think now it's going to get tighter knit yeah. and you're going to really showcase what the city is if you follow that format where we're racing on Sunday and then on Saturday night, it's maybe qualifying and the rest of the time we're going to go downtown, and we're going to have a huge ass party yeah. or something like that. I'd
1: love to see that. I'd love to see them go to every racetrack once with the exception of maybe Daytona twice, maybe starting end the season in Daytona. Um, If you do that, maybe you go to Charlotte twice. I don't see that argument as much, but that's what SMI versus ISC would say. Uh, But I would like to see the All-Star race, the Winston move. I think that having an event that each one of these cities can bid on, like the Super Bowl, that will create some new cash in the market, Mm that will get these facilities to continue to upgrade what they're doing, give everybody an incentive for stepping up, I think is needed. That's not doesn't currently take place in the sport. You know, we saw it with um the NASCAR Sprint Pick Crew Challenge. You know, that was an event that was the week before a couple days before the Winston, the week of the Winston, and trying to get the city involved, like they didn't really have a reason to do it. Mm -hmm. Um nobody it was hard to get sponsors engaged. Where if that was one of the carrots that a city Uh, brought to the table in order to qualify for hosting an event that could be cool and i think that that's what the sport needs is some cities fighting for the the right to host an event so let me just pause for a second ask you the question okay now we're at 20 some events but let's say we could add a couple racetracks. What's the one racetrack that NASCAR is not currently going to that you'd like to see?
0: We've we've said it a handful of times: Long Beach Grand Prix. I would have an invitational. I would do an A and a B because you can't fit all the cars on the track at the same time.
1: Yeah, place is tight for a stock car.
0: And um, but I remember so my first experience going there as a kid. Um, they had the Toyota Grand Prix of Long Beach, or the celebrity race. Yeah. And starring Rutledge Wood? Uh, yeah. But I remember Mary Lou Retton, the gymnast. Wow. Yeah. She was in the car. They, they run like 10 laps or whatever it is. And I remember she put someone in the tire barrier. And that was one of the first times in my life I heard a huge crowd cheer that loud. Really? And no one cared whether they can drive a car or not. It was they saw something that was a holy shit moment. And they they identified with her from the Olympics because this was 85. So she just coming off winning a gold medal and and that's something they can get behind. And so that that to me would be one of them. I think the schedule last year, two years ago, they almost overlapped with Long Beach Grand Prix in the off weekend of Cup. And I was like, oh, it's close. But um,
1: I think Long Beach would be great. Coda is another one that I've had the privilege of attending the Formula One race there and a MotoGP race there. like, that place is amazing. I uh, yep. went to the X Games there. Yep. Um, I'd love to see Cup run there. And I think that some of the old school tracks, like going back to Rockingham, I mean, continues to be a, a spot in my heart. Like, I miss some of those. But if yep. if we freed up some weekends, they could end up doing some of that. And then also some of the celebrity races. I Rock going away, I think, was a miss. Like, there's a couple of those type of things mm-hmm. that... Maybe that's the avid of in me is wanting, but yeah, I think we got to be careful.
0: Um, I think the NA, the NHL does a great job with their Winter Classic, where they take an outdoor hockey event and they have it at a place that you never thought. So yeah. they've had it at the Big House in Michigan, they've had it at um, Wrigley Field. Uh, I think I saw. I think next year MLB is going to have a game at uh, the Field of Dreams in, I- the in I Iowa, the Cornfield in Iowa. I saw
1: that on uh, LinkedIn. That was just. Really cool idea.
0: So what is the winter classic for NASCAR or for IndyCar? That needs to be the question that they need to answer. And if you need to go to North Wilkesboro, which <laughs> that was I, be what I said you know, Dale Junior is is talking about, you know, getting it cleaned up to at least scan it. Um and I think SMI still owns that facility. Um, like that to me would pique a lot of curiosity very quickly and maybe reignite another generation, I think.
1: Did you listen to the um podcast with Dale Jr. about iRacing. Um,
0: I've, the, I've heard the most Steve
1: of... LaTarte podcast with the owners of iRacing and talking about how much Dale Jr.'s had to do with like the progression of that product was yes. really, really cool.
0: Yeah, because I think he had, he he's admitted if he wasn't a race car driver, he'd be in his basement racing iRacing yeah, all the time.
1: <laughs> I thought it was interesting when the COT car came out, they couldn't get any race teams to let them scan a car. So uh, Junior and Tony Uri snuck the car out of the shop. <laughs> oh, wow, I didn't know. Um, basically, before a test, and mm-hmm. sent it over to Junior Motorsports, where they had a booth set up, and they scanned the car there. Oh, wow! Um, and Mr. H never knew until after the fact. <laughs> That, uh, that came out on that podcast. That's been one that I've been surprised. I randomly yeah. started listening to that because a friend of ours, Christine Curley, um, was doing a little bit of work on it. She told me to take a listen. And I've, he's had some really interesting guests. I've been pretty impressed. It
0: seems with. the last year or so, that podcast has been really, really good. And he gets really good um, guests, uh, obviously. And I think the stories that they tell are really good. And I was actually surprised. This is before the, his movie came out. But Michael Waltrip, like, you know, usually he's the goofy Michael Waltrip. He yeah. was awesome on his podcast. Yeah. You know, he was like real Michael Waltrip and I, I've thrown stones of Michael Waltrip before in the past, but he was so good. He has a tendency to get goofy pretty quick, but you know, there's, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Right? You can get him like yeah.
1: get the ADD kind of honed in a little bit, just calm them down, right. get him to tell some real stories. <laughs>
0: Um, thanks very much. This is awesome. I'm sure we can have maybe a few more of these scheduled uh, throughout the rest that. of the year, but uh, thanks for stopping by.
1: Yeah, I love what you're doing here on this podcast. I'm excited. You know, I'm from the Gary V. School of Content Creation. Love Gary V. <laughs> Shout out to Gary V. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. Good work. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you.